I'm so happy to be here today with Matthew again. Um, Matthew Dean Allison, our great philosopher in this little corner, and also a, a script writer and a novelist and trying all the things that, yes, well, that's what it's all about, right? Little incremental steps forward gets you someplace eventually. So you have to have a goal in mind. And uh, our goal for today is to just talk about some ideas that have come up for you in the last month since we talked last. And uh, there were two that you talked to me about. One was the idea of being rooted. And the other one was the idea of being stuck. So we can tackle those one at a time. Which one would you rather start with? I think stuck. Okay. Well, in order to talk about that, I'm going to bring up a video that you sent me and uh, we'll just play a minute or so of it to show people what it was that stood out to you. And uh, get this going. This happens to be Jordan Peterson, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like, uh oh, I'm stuck with you. Just like I'm stuck with me. And, 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 and the vow is exactly that, right? In, in some real sense, the vow is, I'm going to treat you like you're me. And you don't even like yourself very much, so that's a vicious vow. And so you might say, well, how desperate do you have to be when confronted by someone else to change your ways? And the answer might be, well, you have to be as desperate as being shackled to someone makes you. You know, one of the reasons that Tammy and I have got along and are still together is because we both know that we're stuck with each other and so and so we decided quite a long time ago that we didn't want to have the same stupid fight every day for the next 40 years and so and that's like the definition of a bad marriage it's like we have the same fight every day for 40 years that's hell Okay, maybe we can just stop there. We can pick it up later if we want to, but that's enough to start with. This idea of part of the reason people get married rather than just living together, because this whole video is on why you shouldn't live with your significant other before marriage. Part of the reason people do that is that there's an advantage to being stuck. So let's talk about that. I think the phrase cohabitation has an extension beyond um, two consenting parties. Cohabitation is a sort of catch-all for, I think, a tendency to take one problem and sort of dismiss it with the view of the world's problem. And so it becomes a substitution effect. So cohabitation and whether or not I should do it with a consenting other instead of the vow, whatever that may entail, becomes, well, I'm a biologic being evolved from an ape. Ape likes ants. I like my carbs. And we're all just cohabitating with the universe that's spinning out for billions of years. And then you get to put your hands together down on your lap. It sounds like I've said something, but I've said nothing. It sounds like I've reached for something very profound, but I, 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 I defy someone to say what I've evaluated. What program have I run? And what have I solved with the conclusion of the widest reach? 
that we're all cohabitating with other organisms. And by the same token, I think we can do the same thing with how hallowed we can make those three little letters vow. I'm going to vow to this other as if I was vowing to God. And now we can begin to feel as if we've already, just by getting that air out of my lips, I've already done it because I've thought it. And I really attached some emotion to that thought. And I've designated it with the highest valued term I can think of, God. But what have I done? Now, maybe there's a royal path where someone actually walks down the aisle that isn't just the aisle to their apartment door where their cohabitating partner is. But something culturally seen with witnesses. But that's sort of the dilemma I want to face with you concerning the root and whatever is being stuck. Okay. Well, so you want to talk about, you want me to talk about it from the standpoint of uh, my own experience? I, I I think we all, I mean, the I thing is- I can certainly is, do that because I mean, my husband and I have, when I heard Jordan Peterson talking about this in the video, I thought, oh yeah, George and I have been talking about this for years <laughs> because um, I, th I think I've mentioned on this channel before that our first probably 10 years were very difficult, very, very difficult. Um, for one thing, I was 40, I was 44 when we got married. He was 33. So we were already well into our adulthood and had established our own ways of thinking and our own way of processing the world. And, and uh, in a lot of ways, the main thing that we had in common was our faith in Christ. Because he's a technical guy, I'm more of the artist type, more of a reader, he's more of an athlete. <laughs> I think you get the picture. So, so we had our challenges, especially the first 10 years. And um, there were some things that we learned that were helpful. One of them was, you never use the D word ever under any circumstances. And, you know, the joke is, if you never use the D word, sometimes you do have to talk about murder. <laughs> <laughs> but you never mentioned divorce because mm. if you, if you even use it in a fight, then that creates a possibility that that might be something that could happen. But if that's not a possibility, did you ever see Apollo 13? Yes. Back in yes. the day. Do you remember the big line that came out of that movie? No. Failure is not an option. And that's the way it is in marriage, because when you when you come up against something that that is just too painful to make your way through with each other. If you stop there, then you're stuck in that pain for the rest of your life. So you either have to split, which is not an option because failure is not an option, or you got to work your way through that painful part. Right. That's the only thing you can do. And you can feel like, man, I'm stuck. How do I even know that this is the right person that I married? Then you have to come to the conclusion, which is 
not a very pleasant conclusion. And I'm sure that the world would just hee-haw at this. But if you're married to this person, they are now the right person. <laughs> Even if you made a mistake to start with, God can, as long as there's not physical abuse going on, God can redeem any of these things if you put it in his hands and if you trust him to walk you through it. And one of the uh, teachings that we heard that was so helpful early on, there was a guy named Bill and his wife, Annabelle Gillum, that they did this series of teaching on marriage. And they had this thing they called the sandpaper principle that you tend to end up with the person who was created to rub off your rough, rough spots. Hmm. And you were created to rub off their rough spots. And so there is a purpose in your being married to each other. And that purpose is to help each of you to grow into who you are created to be, even if it's a painful process and sandpaper is painful. So one of the things I enjoy about the analogy used of the sandpaper is it brings to mind how the relationship is and now taking it out of the experiential context into a hypothetical one, the relationship in question, one a person might have or they already have, put in terms of the sandpaper, it's functional. It's not inventive or not something that can be willy-nilly innovated. It's as boring and essential as a tree, which do wild things in their stillness during a thunderstorm, which passes by, and lightning and rain, which passes by. That, that expression, the stake and the sizzle, there are companies I go, I've used that analogy once of the WWE and the chair shot. Nobody cared the velocity of the chair moving towards a actor slash wrestlers back. All they cared about was the fulfillment of a story beat that they had been waiting for for months. And the contact of steel and back was just enough for them to continue to suspend their disbelief. That was riding on hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bills being printed and commerced and sold and traded because almost every square inch of the surrounding ring was covered with tax tax companies and cell phone companies and all of these companies which were buying space in the magazine of three-dimensional human beings putting each other in sleeper holes that exposure of what was really going on the owner of the company years back said, we are selling the sizzle, not the steak. That's our business model. And indeed, there's a lot of room in and amongst the sizzle because there's almost nothing there. And hence it's great for advertising space. But in a place where it is sizable and substantial and real steak, there's almost nothing to advertise. There's almost nothing to show to a stranger to interest them, nor should there be. 
because then that would be a gap. So I think part of the beauty of the functional approach is you get a lot of bang for your buck. You actually are in a relationship. But I think for the 21st century, the learning curve is that we have to accept that over 90% of that reality will not be on display outside of the relationship. And in the 1950s, my grandfather's era, that was normal and conventional for private things to remain private. But in this era of social media, I do think it is going to be, it's something I have to come around to the right side of the bell curve for. It's important. Now, when you bring in social media, what aspect are what what aspect are you talking about? You mean the fact that <clears throat> when you look at social media, you mostly see only the the froth of every marriage, all the good things, all the trips to France and the the lovely winery that they just visited. And is that the kind of thing you're talking about? And you you never see the behind the scenes struggle and pain and um and, you know, and the bad side of talking about this is it can make people feel like marriage is just this trauma. It's just a drag, right? Um, but it's it's more like that picture that Jordan Peterson used to always draw when he did the lectures about you're looking above the horizon at the highest good of which you can conceive and you aim for that and you fall short. And so you have to re-aim because by now that that goal that you're reaching for has gotten further out. And so you re-aim and you head for it again and you fall short. And then you re-aim and you fall short. So it's more like this kind of thing. But you're always on the way up. I mean, my husband is, a, even though he's a technical guy, there's an aspect of him that's really got a very romantic mindset because one of the things that he talked about when we were dating, we used to do a lot of hiking and how sometimes it, some hills that you're hiking up, you're just like, oh, can't believe, you know, this is, is too hard. But he said, just remember, every time you get to a new plateau, the view is even more beautiful, right? That's and I think that's the way marriage is, that that you go through these times that are kind of a slog and it's you, you have to catch your breath and you have to pursue. Um, you have to keep pursuing the high point through the difficulty. But then when you get there, the view is even better. And so, I mean, we've been married now for 30. This is our 30th year the view just keeps getting better and better. I mean, the possibility of what it could be, we're nowhere near where we could be, but the possibility of where we could be, that view keeps getting better. And um, where sometimes we'd have a fight and it might last for three days. Then five years later, we'd have that same fight and maybe it would last for two hours and then Five years later, we cycle around to that same issue again, and maybe it lasts for five minutes, you know, and now it comes up and we can kind of look at each other and go, you know, we've been here before, we've solved this, so why are we back here again, you know, and, and so there are just things like that where, um, 
Yeah. I mean, marriage is such a gift from God, but the gift is the obstacle. And I, and I think with that too, especially in our day and age after the enlightenment and Renaissance waves, the froth is gone for most of the Renaissance, but the waves are still underneath the boat coming in and into our culture. And with that sense of the polymath through Google, through knowing that a Facebook refresh is one click away. And then I could go to Instagram and see my avatars, as you said, posting the ideal every 30 seconds. The ideal of a, logist a logistics daydream of getting there to the south of France, being in that perfect chair at the time of the sunset or sunrise, having that glass of wine, blah, 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 blah. All of which would have taken, taken enormous planning, logistics, and what the Stoics would call appropriate fittedness. Mm -hmm. And that piece is, I think, in with your... Uh, parameter in marriage it's it has this upward trajectory that within its upward diagonal it swerves up and down and zigzags but it's but it, but if you were to draw a line that doesn't exist but does cut through every part that line which doesn't exist but cuts through every part is going up mm -hmm. with them and the that can't be that thing that cuts through which isn't there and is that can't be cohabitation. That can't be just the convention of, well, we're saving $200 a month. That can't be the thing. I will not accept it. But I do think it's closer to say that's Christ as a Christian or to say that is, that is the thing which makes possible human beings being able to relate to the future. Maybe that's a good way to begin because someone might say to themselves, myself included, well, I'm not married. And yet I can put what was just said in a frame. I can see the beginning and the end of marriage, good beginning, great end, tough middle with its prizes and consolations. But I'm outside. I just give me a key so I can get in and start. I'm wasting time not being married. <laughs> I mean, I can't practice being married without being married. So why don't we just and and yeah, and that's the very thing I think social media preys upon. We can form the idea in our mind with its frames. We can then see it vividly ourselves. And then something about it will attach itself to one of our senses, creating pleasure or fear. And then we can go to these technologies that serve as a as a an engineer production mixing board that just dials it right to its precise moment up and then right down engineering that sound of the percussive sensation that's all over that frame we built for ourselves of man I, I could I, that person over there they're holding the coffee cup just the way I am right now I mean, it could be. And then you throw in a, a doctrine of providence 
that you heard in a sermon and you start connecting the dots and then then it's then it becomes an urge and then you find a motivational speaker that then gives you an impetus for that urge and before long you find that you're kind of being manic and i think our our culture especially especially online it's uh it greases its wheels on that urgency which fizzles out and then re-energizes itself through something else which meta which in a largest in the largest frame i can conceive of inspires the virtue of impatience mm-hmm. and it doesn't reward the practice of patience but now i leave that as an open question how does one engender patience before practice before the practice that i desire marriage for instance how do i practice the patience requisite in preparation before I practice the thing, the whole container of the relationship itself, especially with the fact that there is no guarantee of the future. These are questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm gonna put this together with some things that sound cliche, but but it totally makes sense to me. And one of them is that, as I've said before about art, your vision always outruns your skill. So when you're talking about, oh, I see this person and they hold the cup the same way I do. And then I get this message and I get this idea. Maybe this is God's will. And then I, I get all ahead of my, basically what you're saying is I get all ahead of myself. Okay. So when I say my vision outruns my skill, what I mean is I see, let's say I see a, a painting by some other artist and I think, oh, that's exactly where I want to be. That's what I want to be able to do. So that's sort of become my ideal. That ideal acts as a judge against me. The ideal is always a judge. So I can't reach that ideal. So how can I reach that ideal without having to go through the work of getting there? Oh, I can copy it. Right. But copying it is not, not, investing it with me and it's not allowing me to grow the skills that I need to eventually produce something of that quality that represents me instead of representing this other person. Basically what I'm trying to do if I copy it is I'm trying to adopt their magic and use their magic for myself. Or you know, if I see all this stuff on Instagram, it's these ideals. Well, I want to get, that's what I want. But that's not you. That's just what somebody else has curated to to tempt you to think that that's you. But if you think about your vision always outrunning your skill, there's a purpose in your vision because the vision is what's drawing you forward. It's like that little glimmering thread that Peterson always talks about that's out in the future in front of you, which is really your future calling you forward. It's almost as though God, God invests certain things with interest to draw you forward so that you're willing to go through whatever sacrifice and suffering is necessary to learn those skills so that you can actually get to the place where you need to be. So um, I think that for people who are single who want to be married, 
because I remember being in that place, especially after my first husband left me. And uh, I had been alone for like three years and I really desired to be in a relationship again. I was reminded that what I needed to do was work on my, not to get myself involved in relationships that weren't healthy, but to work on myself so that I would be the person that, that when the, when the right guy shows up, if I'm not, if I haven't become more of myself, if I haven't become the fragrance of Christ more in my own unique personhood, why is he going to be the least bit interested in me? Why is he going to see anything in me? So if I just keep running after this guy or that guy who might be somebody to just hang out with, but is not really a, a life mate, then I'm becoming less and less of who God made me to be, which means I'm not going to be um, a golden thread to anybody else who might be walking by who is the guy that I want to be married to you know i mean i'm not making much sense there but but when when that bible, I hear you. when that bible teacher told me that i thought yeah okay so i got to break up with this other guy who happens to be very attractive and and he's got money and all that but but for him the the church family was not important for him he had he was spiritual but not religious. He he didn't, you know, he believed in God, but he thought Christians were hypocrites, so he didn't want to go to church. That was killing me because for me, the family of the church was my family. That's where I live, that's where I thrive. So dating this guy was actually keeping me from becoming more who Christ intended me to be. So I had to break up with him. And just trust that whether or not somebody comes along, it's more important for me to be who Christ is calling me to be than it is for me to be in relationship. Because, and I think, with, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, that's the core right there. I think with that, uh, an important axiom that I'm taking out so far from what you said is dignity. If I don't see, it's the cart before the horse. So again, going to that word cohabitation and all its abuses, a nihilist might, a nihilist becomes a nihilist through cohabitation. And I don't mean that just with a consenting partner. I mean, or, own, or even in that case, I mean, intellectually. Well, I'm a chimp. A chimp is a snake. A snake is the dust. The dust came from some asteroid. Asteroid came from some black hole. The bottom of the black hole is a singularity. So we're all infinitely dense and uh, inexplicable to ourselves. There we go, both ends. Uh, that's where we all are. Well, you've cohabitated with everything just now intellectually and nothing. And that sort of blah, it, it drains, it drains, it drains one of any motivation because you don't know your natural power. You don't know where you want to be in the future because you have no direction. 
a natural power is a natural direction that that has a telos, an end. It's not just spin, uh, rinse, and repeat in, until the lights go out. It, it can mess it up if it deviates from its natural motion to a natural end, which is satiated. And that natural end beckons the dignity of one's beginning. And it's not enough to just say that. You have to actually experience it through being a human being. And when you're, I think when, when, when one takes that seriously in one's own respect, then one can give respect to a fellow human being. But if one begins with, ah, it's, it's atoms all the way down with a swerve at the bottom that makes it all ripple up at the top, then that's how one will treat their fellow, even implicitly. I'm not saying you would try to, but how could you deviate from that disrespect? And that 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 slowly chips away. And I do believe that. I think that slow that slowly chips away. I mean, showing up. What is showing up? None of us show up. We're mostly empty space with atoms. So showing up for a football game, uh, right? It's so. I mean, it's so. I mean, it just shows up. So I, I do think metaphysics underneath the hand, as opposed to above the hand, is good. When Moses had his hand lifted, the, the, uh, the Israelites prevailed. When his hand fell, they were prevailed upon. Now, I don't pretend to know what that means, but what I'm using it for now is to say he did something with his God-given hand. He was himself. And that is what made the future promising to advance. But if it's just hands down, the other part of that speculation will be prevailed upon. Go ahead. The other part of that story is he was able to keep his hands up because of the community surrounding him, because one on either side was holding his hands up so that no matter how tired he got, he could still hold his hands up so that they could prevail. And that that's the whole story of now. See, in my case, it wasn't because I had fallen into nihilism that I was um allowing my my essence to be um frittered away on this guy it was because i was allowing myself to be needy right in 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 a very unhealthy way instead of turning my eyes toward christ and allowing him to be my my satisfaction i was looking to some human relationship because well you know because i had been hurt and abandoned and and there are there, there are reasons, as Jordan Peterson always says, because life is hard, right? There are reasons. But, um, but yeah, I think the, well, when you got to that thing about telos, it made me think about this video. I want to share a little bit of this other video, um, which I'm going to have to find here. This one, I think. Just catch this now. This up here in the upper left-hand corner, I, well, maybe the screen will be flipped. I don't know. Anyway, up here, this is Ian McGilchrist, who has written The Master and His Emissary and has been struggling with the idea of what is at the top of the hierarchy 
and has been coming to some conclusions. This is Michael Levin, who is this biochemist who is actually capable of making um, chimera, making monsters. He's capable of it with uh, cellular manipulation. This guy down at the bottom is a guy named Richard Watson, who I'm not sure what his background is, but he is also a, a scientist and um, thinker extraordinaire. Anyway, these three guys got together just sort of contemporaneously. Michael Levin put this on his channel, so he wanted people to see it. Not hosted by anybody. It's just these three guys talking about what makes the world tick. And they get to mm -hmm. this certain point, and this is just very interesting. If it's not tangible, what are we, what are we saying? What are we proposing? Well, I think I think the mathematicians have been wrestling with this for thousands of years, right? When you you know, is mathematics yeah. discovered or invented? If it's discovered, which I think it is, uh, you know, as an amateur, of so course, do I. I. Right? Then then <laughs> then you've got this really fundamental question that transcends biology and evolution, and everything else, which is what 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 play you know what what space are you exploring when you, when you discover these things? You know, but isn't that different? Because you can explore ideas in space mentally. That's fine. But we're talking about a situation where an apparently um, simple body of cells is able to create incredibly complex structures with 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 the right types of cells in the right place with the right connections in the right order, so that you get the architecture the very fine architecture of a brain or of the cerebellum and it, it i i have no clue and i don't know anybody who has any clue of where where the map for this is if you see what i mean i mean people gesture towards um the the, the dna sequence but as we know there's there's nothing like enough information in that to to give this high level of very detailed formal information. And I, I think it's an interesting question. Well, I think, I think now we're back to where this conversation started, with, which is the idea that if, if we assume that um, intelligent brains are the only things that are able to explore that space, then we're at an impasse. But I actually yeah. think that kind of like what Dennett calls uh, competence without comprehension, I think you can explore that space without human level understanding of what you're doing. I think evolution as a non-zero, but certainly not human level uh, process, that's exactly what it's doing. It's, it's searching that space. And the good news apparently is that that space has some kind of a structure to it. Otherwise you couldn't really search it very well. So in my head, and this is all, this is all, you know, completely like, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of hypothetical and, and, and of course, controversial, but, yeah. but in my head, you could imagine, you, you know, how people make a map of mathematics. So they make this map and, you know, and then the topologies over here and then next to it, there's something else that's connected in some way. And then there's number theory. And I, I feel like there is a structure like that to this space. So once you've discovered mm -hmm some once you've discovered how to make simple archimedean machines of a certain type the other types are right there next to it it's not you know it, it it it's not that hard to sort of right so you've got a lever well you can also make this other thing that's sort of close and and when you when you've evolutionarily discovered an, an a voltage gated ion channel which is a transistor basically right then you can have a couple of them and then you can make a logic gate. And if you make a certain kind of logic gate, then you can make many other things. And, you know, I sort of just in my head, I kind of visualize that there's this like 
space of these of these free lunches, so to speak, that evolution can, you know, it, it, when you make the right machine. So if you don't have the right machine, you can't make use of it. But if you make the right machine, suddenly, mm. oh, look, you know, mm. the laws of adhesion now. Right. Right. So 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 look. So what's so interesting about this is that. McGilchrist is actually thinking in as he talks later, you can see he's thinking in terms of a hierarchy, a hierarchy of values with the mm. holy at the top. And that the world has become inverted and that's why we're in trouble. When Michael Levin is talking about this, he can imagine that there is this space that exists where these things exist in this space and that evolution can search that space and find what it needs. So he's granting all kinds of agency to evolution. But as much as he talks about this, he never talks about where did that space come from? <laughs> that has all these wonderful gifts in it, right? I mean, the gifts are right there waiting in the space. And what that space implies is that there, there is a teleology. I mean, they go on later. I don't want to play the whole thing. Although if I played two or three more minutes, we would get to the part where they talk about teleology. But, but basically, that's, that's the kind of stuff they're struggling with. But at least these guys are willing to talk openly about it because you can tell as they're talking, right, how challenging it is to find words to say these things. And in certain places in the video, they even come out and say, it's, it's a little scary to talk this way because of what that means in terms of our scientific reputations, right? To even get the word teleology out there is scary. It's almost like taking a vow. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. That was just, yeah. I, mean, I couldn't help myself. Yeah. Because, I mean, no, because the, the other thing about the vow, right? Later on in the Jordan Peterson video, he talks about marriage being this container in which a chemical reaction takes place that makes something more than what was there to begin with. But the chemical reaction takes place under heat and pressure, right? I mean, the, the language George and I always used about it was it's a crucible. Marriage is a crucible. Um, but that's exactly why you can look at marriage as being the fundamental relationship in all of the universe. Because you can go all the way back down to the, the inside of a star was the crucible where the first elements were formed, right? So those elements are formed and, and then now you have hydrogen and helium and all those things. And then later on, when those elements are attaching to each other to make something else, to make, um, I can never remember this, compounds and mixtures. <laughs> One of them is something entirely new, like uh, to make salt, you use, there's a gas and a solid or something that come together and then you end up with salt so so you have these two very disparate things but when they're put under heat and pressure they become something new and that that crucible of forming two disparate things into something that is more than it was before that's the picture that goes all the way down that's the two hemispheres of the brain that's um that's the man and woman coming together in marriage to to 
the marriage itself becomes something more. But then beyond that, if you if you have the opportunity and the blessing, then you also have children that becomes something more, right? And then that becomes the future. The um, I'm in, I'm absorbing the impact of what you said. The To go back to the McGilchrist and the other professors' different approach to the matter, looking at it symbolically, what comes to my mind is McGilchrist, as you said, is looking at the hierarchy and a top of the pyramid, even if that top is a question mark for now. Mm-hmm. The Garden of Eden was it in a valley? It was apparently up on a high mountain because the rivers are described as coming down in the description in the first few chapters of Genesis. So perhaps paradise models itself well on the McGillcrest view. Is it to the exclusion of the other scientist? I wonder. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Because when he talks about this meta space, yeah where there is potential of a kind next to potential of a different kind. And it's a matter of which potential you activate first that then brings into coordination some kinds of potential that can be activated versus others. Although they're not in competition, they do not have to be in competition, brings to my mind Exodus and the walking in the desert of the Israelites, and God feeding them with the manna, and manna means what is it? Hmm. So daily they were fed with a question Hmm. because they looked at it and said, what is it? And they ate it, and it satiated. It fulfilled for the day, and then the next day they gathered, and they were told not to save because their new wish would be filled up by the what is it? So I do think that captures that sense of a space in a space in a space, which That's seems so like barrenness, yeah. but also could be the womb of That's that. I think those two scientists are beside each other in the walk. Yeah, because the question is the gift. Okay. Right. The question is the gift that that was. I guess I. Jordan Peterson has colonized my mind. <laughs> so I have to bring him in again. But that's what he talks about in Maps of Meaning, that he spent so many years of his life formulating the question, which was for him the question of why was there such atrocity in the, in the 20th century? The Nazi Holocaust and the... the Holodomor and the starvation in the Ukraine and all of those things that that's that Stalinist Russia caused. And for Jordan Peterson, that question was the gift because that's what set him on the path of learning all these other things. That's why he studied um, psychology. That's why he became a, a clinical therapist. That's why he wrote the book. That's why he had to research all the things to write the book. So, so that question was like the, the formative 
that that's the frame of his life. The question was the frame of who he has become, right? And so in Hebrews eleven three, it says, "Through faith we understand that the world worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear." The things which are seen are the stuff that we're dealing with now, but the things which do not appear are those things that are in that meta space, right? But it all has to start with a frame and the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now that too, I think speaks of marriage because, and I haven't worked this out. This is just coming to me now. So it might be a wrong analogy, but Jonathan Pajot is always talking about the feminine as being the one who provides the question. And, the, and so she provides the question to the man and the man in answering is responding to the question. But then he is also the initiator with the answer. And then she responds to the initiation. So, so it's, it, it goes around, but it starts with the female with the question. Not the female, not female person, but the idea, the archetype of femininity is the, is the archetype of the question. So I think there's really something there that question and answer are also a marriage of sorts. And so... Um, if Christ provides the frame, then the the world. So you know, it does is it Jonathan Jonathan's brother that talks about the marriage of heaven and earth, right? So the yes. marriage of of um, the marriage of God and His creation, the marriage of Christ and the body of the church. All of those things are, are marriages. So the earth side of it seems to be the question. <laughs> the feminine side, the, the earth side seems to be the feminine side, which is this providing of the question. Now, I don't I know what that means long term, but. Well, I, I think one of the things it does is. It puts the horse in front of the cart. What I mean by that is, again, post-Renaissance, post-Enlightenment, post-Francis Bacon's The New Science or The New Organon or whatever it's called, there has been a habit, I would say, in, in the West to proceed by induction. Give me the smallest amount of detail. Make it, make it something that I don't find. I'll lift a finger. Of, of detail. But from that finger lifted, I want to go to another level. And let's see how far I can go tethered to this one movement, this one detail, this one granted thing. But I'm not going to fill it with anything else because maybe the other stuff is unnecessary and I don't want to deal with anything unnecessary, no filler. That's fine. I'm sure that has its place. It, it certainly has a place. We do analysis all the time, process of elimination, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
I read somewhere that working memory has three to four episodes in it, three to four instances in it that are being constantly replaced. So we tend to, by default, operate with uh, new science, new organon, lift a finger, infer the universe sort of mentality. So we don't have to try. That's what we tend to do anyway. It must mean, too, that it's all we really need to move forward. So if, if we already do that by default, what then are we here for? Why are we in the arena of the existence to fight? What are, we, what are we here to learn? What are we here to struggle for? What are we here to train as soldiers or athletes? I was watching so many videos this morning about boot camps. I've become obsessed with one, two things, the lighting of candles and boot camps. So the lighting of candles is fascinating. Because it looks like a simple thing, even in an, in an ornate church, strike the match, light the wick, walk away, oh, double check, see if there's uh, adequate oil, but be sure to walk away and light the next one, otherwise you'll be there all day. And with a boot camp, oh gosh, yeah, they can go stomp away with their drill sergeant. I don't want any part of that. It's too much for me. They're disciplined. Well, they're some of the happiest people, seems to me. In fact, when you take them from that environment, they sort of itch. And I don't think that's because they're uh, these dots over there to the right or to the far left of the bell curve. I think what drill sergeants and boot camp and being set apart for a while and really attending to uh, the covers on the bed and detail and will the coin bounce on the surface is a microcosm, a story being told of the arena of attaining and realizing our own dignity. That is already there. So lighting the candle is just as can be, just as precise as going into boot camp. We don't have to make it an either or. That's for some, this is for everybody else. Be middle class, you know, watch your Netflix and wait for the universe to spin out. No, I, one could light a candle very precisely and find God. It wasn't above God in giving us the law to help us as an aid to give very detailed instruction about the significance of the lighting of the lamps in front of the testimony or in front of the tent of testimony in Leviticus. It's very, very precise. And I don't think it's by accident because a little bit later on in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish virgins, five and five, different modes of life, different approaches, he draws upon this language of the oil and the lamp and the light. I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost done. I just think this is such a neat connection because it's, it's about far more than lighting lamps. Mm -hmm. um, so in Leviticus, it makes important qualifications. If you go into a church, right, nothing is natural. Oh, we don't watch plants grow their own way without water, without nice soil. We paint, we have pillars, we have melodious song, we walk in certain places at certain times. Everything is qualified. Everything has quality. It's not bare matter down to its bones. It's qualified. So in the little story about how to light the lamps in front of the 
the uh, tabernacle of testimony in front of the veil. Aaron and his sons were instructed to do this. And all the children of Israel were told by Moses to watch Aaron and his sons do this in a certain way. They had to take not oil, not, uh, not olives, and not a lamb. They had to take pure oil, pressed olives, and a pure lampstand. And the flame was not just a flame. It was a continually burning flame from night to day. Now, what stuck out to me as I was reading that, oh, it's so boring, just so literal. It's so material. It's just, you know, the sort of thing that would be in a technical manual. The, the way to read it in my mind is to ask yourself the question. It's an anomaly question. What is not like the other? What doesn't fit? Because that's why this law exists. It's to get me to wake up and become aware of my human dignity, that I am I'm in a creation. I'm not just in a glob. I'm in a creation. I'm, I'm, I'm here to see something. So what doesn't fit? Well, notice the adjectives. It's not just an olive. It's a pressed olive. And it's not just oil. It's pure oil. And it's not just a lamp burning. It's continuously burning. And it's not just continuously burning in a void from night to day. So all of that qualification of natural elements, I think, is what partly we're supposed to see in that commandment. That when human beings interact with the limit between us and God, with the veil of the tabernacle testimony, we approach this with qualification. We approach this as artisans from the artisan. We approach this stuff as creation, never as stuff. It's with the foolish virgins who said, he's coming and he's delayed. We'll get married to him when he arrives. He's delaying. Oh, he's here? Oh, give me some of your oil, because it's just oil. No, no, if we give you some oil, we'll have less, and then none of us will be able to make it there in time, because all this matters. All of it's towards something. Go buy it yourself, because you couldn't be bothered to press the oil in your lifetime. Okay, we'll go buy. At the end, when they came up to the door, they had exactly what the command in Leviticus commanded. They had their lamp. They had fire, which all we know in the part of the New Testament was burning continually, even when they were running to the marketplace to buy more oil. It was coming down to the wick, but it, wasn't, it doesn't tell us that it went out. So they had continuously burning flame. They had pure oil. They bought it. It, did, it didn't say in the commandment that you couldn't buy the pressed olive oil. They had the pressed oil. They had the continuously burning flame, and they had the lampstand. So what is not like the other? What were they missing? Because the, 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 the bridegroom on the other side of the door said, I don't know you. I always thought maybe that he said that because they didn't, they didn't get, they didn't make it to the market and back in time. And so they, they came late. And I don't know the answer. I just think it's such a wonderful, it, it, it makes us, it makes us consider the qualities. Well, I really like that whole idea of qualification and quality because I was just thinking in terms of like you were talking about the the recruits making a bed so that the coin would bounce off the surface. Um, my mother taught me how to make a bed properly because my dad was in the military. So I knew how to make the military corners and all that. And in fact, when I was growing up, 
one of my jobs was to iron the sheets because back in those days, we actually ironed sheets and towels. If you can imagine, along with all of the other clothes, because there weren't dryers so that things could come out all nice and fluffy. When you put things on a clothesline, they get all, they're kind of all crumpled up and, and uh, everything needs to be ironed. So I know how to live with that kind of quality, but over time we've become as a society, a little bit lax on things. Right. And it's easy over time as a person gets older to even why bother with making the bed, you know? And so Jordan Peterson is very good reminder of that. Or or who's that military guy who wrote a whole book about how important it is to make your bed first thing in the morning. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's given lots of talks on that. And so, because what happens is if you start to give way on little things like that, we would use the word degenerate. Over time, you're starting to degenerate a little bit at a time. Your life becomes less and less connected to the special aspect of life and more and more to just get along, you know, whatever. But then the opposite of degenerate is to generate. It's not to stay neutral. You can't hit a place where you just coast. It doesn't work that way. You might think, oh, I could just be neutral and not have to be quality, but it doesn't work that way because the minute you give up on quality, you start to degenerate. So we as human beings, what, what, what qualifies something as living as opposed to something that's not living is this actual aspect of continually creating energy of continually generating because the minute you stop generating, you die. So we are supposed to be in the process of creation all the time and generate and generate and generate. And as human beings, one of the ways that we do that is by building habits into our lives that keep us on a quality track instead of just allowing everything to slide down the hill. That's one of the toughest things about getting older is that, well, you know, does it really matter if I do this this way instead of that way? I've lived all these years and sort of gotten along. Maybe I could get along a little longer. And so you can just kind of let things fall off the edge. But I think at a certain point, you just hit a cliff. I mean, one of the things you brought up earlier about in, in, in one of your emails to me that you want to talk about is this idea of a tree, how a tree has a visible half. And as you said, the invisible half has branches and leaves and it's out there in the sky and the air surrounding it and everything. And uh, any sort of little reshuffling can cause irregularities, right? Just like a butterfly's wing flapping in Brazil can cause a typhoon in Timbuktu. I don't know. I don't remember how it goes, but chaos theory is that even a little thing can have big consequences. But then you asked about the the part of the tree that's not invisible, the root. And you said something like um, the value of a root in its place. So what were you thinking when you said that? The value of a root in its place. So I'm becoming, along with lighting the candles, I'm becoming fascinated with the seven ecumenical councils. And 
That's something I don't know anything about. So fill me in. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. I'm I'm slowly learning. This is an orthodox to... thing. Oh. I think it's a Christian thing. Okay. It's just it's it's our heritage. It's the heritage. It's our heritage. It's... Oh, this is something that's been had seven ecumenical councils. Oh, looking at the the conglomeration of all the different denominations. Yeah, I got it. Okay. The um the With the printing press and the internet, as you said, it can become so easy to fall into, well, it's a Google search away, so I don't have to do it now. Oh, it's on this page of the textbook. Uh, I can read those red letters, blue letters, that figure 2.1 later. Right now, I'm going to eat the Snicker bar and watch uh, Dracula sink his teeth into that uh, person's neck on top of the cliff for the hundredth time in a different episode, because it's it's cheap and easy and it's quick and it's I know exactly what it is. And I also know exactly what it's not. It's not that great figure 2.1 that I could be looking into on the fourth ecumenical council, because uh, I'll get around to that. I'm, I'm preparing myself with this, you know, low thing to get to step up there. Well, one step leads to the next and we never get around to figure 2.1. And one of the figures, of the discussions and the formulations of the parameter of where, as long as I'm in it, I can be creative and find different metric spaces, is the understanding that Christ is one person with two natures. And those two natures are not confused with each other. So, he can walk on water with human feet as God. And also, because of his great love for us and compassion, he is called the lover of mankind, the only, only lover of mankind. When he voluntarily steps down through the cross to hell, he can voluntarily step up and bring all every last cubic inch of human nature with him. So you're left with a hole instead of hell. And it may not look like it now because I am so, I'm in the arena. I'm not resurrected. I say this as a Christian. We, we don't have a dichotomy of the body and the soul or the mind and the body. We're not Cartesian. We don't let the body sink into just some theory of birds pecking at each other long enough that we eventually get, you know, these noses that smell so well. We, we don't play that game. We, we were given this body simultaneously with our soul and the ability to reason and find our reason to go forward because we're in the image of God. The question becomes the likeness. Do we want to walk with God? not just have the imprint of God, the marks of God, where when he was in Eden, he said, Adam, where are you? He was looking for his image that like a snipers, they call them the gully suits they wear in the forest and foliage to block the signatures of a human being around the cheek, around the armpit, around the hips. So you blend in. And your human signature disappears. But it takes a lot of time. You have to stitch it, 
throw a lot of junk on it, layers, and then you have to season it like a kettle. Or what's what's that thing? The black iron. Uh, what did they used to cook with? Cast and they wouldn't iron. wash it. Cast iron. Cast iron. Yeah. You would the verb you would season your cast iron by not washing it. Just throw eggs and bacon, eggs and bacon, a lot of stuff on it, and season the thing. They season their gully suits by running in the water, laying on the dirt, rolling in the leaves intentionally. But all it takes is to be called out of that. Okay, training's done. Take it off for the human signatures. There's great power in the call. So we're not called to follow nature. We're called to follow Christ. But Christ took our nature and made it unified with divinity. So when he calls us to call him, we are going the noble and right path of our own nature to what also is united with our nature and is higher than our nature. So it's not figure 2.1 in a textbook that we're getting around to reading. We're in it already. Everybody will be resurrected, the Christians say. It's a matter of, are we using our time to discover, like that scientist said of mathematics, the mathematics of our being? Christian. Even if we don't believe we're Christian, we're Christian ontologically. We're all going to be resurrected. We're we just like the real number line is behind me. Even if I don't take the time to study real numbers and prime numbers, it does exist. The potential of the resurrection exists. It's just do how 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 much time do we want to spend next to the candle? I know I'm speaking in metaphors, but I do think this relates to taking a vow and being committed to the marriage versus, well, pretty blue eyes and uh, $2 million or whatever the variable happens to be, right? <laughs> wow, there's just so much in there that one could respond to. But, um, But so I think it's, taking a for vow, me, it, it practically grounds itself out in prayer. I'm sorry, what were you saying? I was just going to say, is that related to the rootedness? When you talk about the tree and you wanted to talk about the root, was that um, because you, you made the comment, you said uh, the value of a root in its place. And then basically you said, what is that value? And then you said stability, right? So Psalm 1, Psalm 1 has, I was thinking of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 has the tree. And what is not like the other? It will yield its fruit in its seasons. Fine. And its leaf does not wither. Hold on. You had me at seasons with tree. Now you're saying the leaf won't wither? Uncanny valley. What kind of tree is this? Surely then it won't yield its fruit just in season. It should also yield its fruit out of season if the leaf does not wither. So why something so natural and unnatural paired hmm. or squared? But if the root doesn't stay in its place, then you might not see that walking on water the, the 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 leaf not yield the leaf not withering is in my mind god's commitment to unify to unify the divinity with the nature of human beings that he made which he loves and 
the longing for was made complete in the incarnation and the guarantee of the future resurrection was in the resurrection. These things are coupled mathematically. It's very sensible and rational and logical. Uh, it has nothing to do with evolving from lower to higher species. It has to do with staying in place. It, I, I don't, I, I can't think of a, uh, at the time, a better analogy than we can, we can walk like a duck, we could quack like a duck, but we'll never become a duck. We can say we know what human beings are. We can act like we think we know what human beings act like. But until we turn to Christ, we're never going to become human beings fully. That marriage of awareness and being, won't they won't stick. We'll always be searching because the passions will just overtake us in our ignorance. It doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> I'm 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 in the mud, but but the the prodigal, he he knew his father from beginning to end, and he is blessed in the season of Lent. So I feel the same way that um, that when we pray, it can be just like doing a math problem, just like cooking. It takes the same level of precision and also not making it everything. You should just be consistent. We already are, the incarnation and resurrection happened. I mean, can we put our minds around that? But are we going to be consistent with that truth to actually be resurrected and let on the other side of the door? We spend so much time arguing about whether or not the thing happened that we never get around to doing the thing and figure that figure 2.1 is talking about. And the real, like, the real fortification of the belief that it happened once is to see it happening in your own life. That's the faithfulness is trying. It's not an intellectual thing, but the goodness and the wisdom, those are the fruits of the trying. And then those things cycle back to make your faith so logical that you get in your groove and you start to realize, okay, I have questions, but I have fewer questions. But again, it's, it's like, it's like the leaf does not wither because the tree is planted by the living water. Right. And then I think about your tree analogy of the, the, the visible part of the tree with all the leaves and everything can get upset a little bit by the storm, but the storm will most, most of the time the storm will blow right through the tree. Right. But in California here in the last month or so, we've had um, some big winds, probably not bigger than anywhere else, but some big enough winds that whole bunch of trees got uprooted and knocked over. And for some reason, the trees that get uprooted and knocked over just happen to be the ones that are right by the power lines. And so for several days, there were many, many, many power lines that had gone down all over the Bay Area. Too much for the power company to be able to take care of right away. So it took several days for some people to get their power back. Why were those trees uprooted? Well, 
little known fact about the way things go in California is that we have um, periodic droughts. And when we have a drought, sometimes it lasts for seven years. During droughts, people do still water their lawns, but maybe not as much as they should. And if a tree is only getting lawn water, then that means it's just getting shallow root water. So the tree is gonna keep its roots up near the surface in order to get whatever little water is coming. Mm -hmm. But when you get drenching rains on a regular basis, the water goes down in the earth. So when things dry out, all the water is down low and the tree will grow roots that go down to where the water is. So California tends to have a lot of trees where the roots are very shallow during these seasons of drought. And then when the rains come and the wind blows, the tree just flops right over. I think it's a great picture. I think so too. But what, this what year we've had soaking rain. So hopefully some of the trees will start putting down deeper roots this year. Roots rooted in the living water, you know, in, in the, there's another scripture. I can't remember what right now where it is, but to be rooted and grounded in Christ, right? That that's the goal. You have to put down deep roots for that. It's a marvelous image you painted of, of those trees and in that place and the consequence of the clouds. It, it, it triggered in my mind, baptism and the flood and the new creation. But what I hadn't put together before was what you drew out with the, the roots going deep, because I was sort of indifferent. As long as they're in the ground, they're invisible. But what you brought up is those roots have a natural motion. They're going to go where the water seems to normally be. And if, the, if on the surface, flood, catastrophe, too much, too soon, chaos, noise, all Petersonian about it. But those roots don't know. The, 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 the roots don't care. The roots don't live up there. All they think is golden buffet, going down all the way. Keep going. We're getting really tall and in our own way, becoming very virtuous. And we're never going to be seen again where we ought not to be seen where we don't belong anywhere near that other deep, deep, dark, bright place called the surface. We're going to go all the way up, which is our down, and stay because of what was prepared for us, that those earthlings up there call disaster and catastrophe. It is for them right now, but in a few days, it will be wonderfully pleasant to them, and they'll call it paradise. Because of where we are and where they are together. And I, I think that's part of why the theme has to be to wait, to endure. Christ said, by patience, you will gain your souls, deep and tall. You will gain your souls by patience. I mean, our, if, if God does love us and know how, knows how to give good gifts to those who ask, then we just have to sit through the storm. Because it's probably there, as you pointed out so wonderfully, for a reason. We're not the center of the world. So it doesn't have to be a reason pertaining to us in order to pertain to us. It might pertain to those roots, 
being where they belong down there so that we up here can enjoy the fruit of the vine. So even if it doesn't involve us, it probably involves us. So let's, let's let everything have its reason and cause outside of our grasp, as the Stoics would say. Because even paradoxically, if it's beyond us, it's within us because all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that comes back to our dignity. But if we just go for the cheap route, you know, that quick click that lets me see things and or that quick date, that speeding date, speed dating thing, whatever, then I get I get what I ask for, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I I I feel you, brother. I don't I don't know what I don't know what this generation is supposed to do to meet people of the opposite sex that have the same faith that you have. I think, I mean, um, in my case, I met my husband because of getting involved in a ministry and we were, we were both involved in the ministry and that's how we met. So, I mean, I always think that that that's a good way to just go about your life worshiping and serving and then you'll meet other people who are worshiping and serving. And, but I know it's gotten way more complicated because partly because what's happening right now is that it seems as though it's a lot more men coming back to the church right now. Mm. And the women haven't really, the numbers in terms of women haven't kept up with the number of men coming back to the church, at least in certain age ranges. But You know what I think the, a lot, I mean, metaphorically, theologically, metaphysically, whatever adverb you want to put in front of it. I want to say what you said about the framing of the question with the feminine archetype in relation to what you just said historically. I think I agree with you. Men are coming, at least the local church I go to, the converts are, are young men. And everyone's different. But what I'm seeing is, to use your phrase, the golden thread, is it's real, it's old, it's consistent, and it it sticks, it stays put, it's intact, it coheres, it's it's logical, it's it's all the stuff of a good video game is, except it's it's real. It's real. I, I can't say anything more than that. I, and I have time for it, which I think is not inconsequential or insignificant. They have time because they're, they have a job, they've got some free time, they, nothing else to do. There's a church and it's, it's a, it's this weird church. It's a, it's all those things I just mentioned. Now, all of that together underneath an umbrella, I think you could say, well, it's raining outside, so we'll stay underneath the umbrella, but I don't think it's the ark story. I think it's rather the men are learning to be What's the word? What's that word? When they're knights in armor, chivalrous. They're learning to be chivalrous through this engagement. So I think the church is asking the men a question. Mm-hmm. And the men, it's such a it's such an important, wide, uh, subtle, and hard to hear question that they respond to it. That's a video game, but better. But uh, 
it's a lot of stuff I can study. You know, I'm going to read my patristic fathers and, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, as Matt Allison would say, I'm going to get my seven ecumenical councils right. Um, it's, I, I, you know, some people go to Africa to hunt wild game. And I think in the same way, that's a question asked. It's a ge geography asking the would-be hunter a question. In the same way, it's it's enticing the men with a question and they're answering. And I I think when they, if if they stick it out, then, then their wives will appear. I mean, in Genesis, she was presented to him, not he to her. He was he was given a task and he was given a wide open space. And also he was given time to be watched by God as he was naming the animals. Remember that? Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I think it's the same thing. Well, I, I do agree. I think that there was a whole generation of young women looking around saying, where are all the good men? And now the good men are being prepared. So when the good men are prepared, once they're ready, that's the whole thing about patience, right? Is developing the skills that you need, let, getting your roots deep, growing in faith, growing that faith muscle and um, falling in love with Christ. And when, when, when they're ready, the brides will appear. <laughs> and one of the beautiful, and I use whether that word. The, whether the bride is the church or an actual female is another question because i understand there are also a lot of men being drawn into the monastery yeah but and either way it would be god's god's gift right absolutely and i think with that you anticipated exactly what i wanted to where i wanted to go with it so thank you is uh, it is beautiful and i use that word precisely that in patience contradictions become paradoxes. But if we're impatient, we'll never experience a paradox. Everything will become a contradiction. So, for example, the Christian believes Mary gave birth to God and remained a virgin. So we hold up the virgin. And we hold up Adam and Eve. It was very good. An actual generation, propagation of the species. Without the patience, which is a sort of thing that surpasses understanding that's given to us through grace as an energy, that will remain a contradiction. And just like believing like a nihilist, though acting like a materialist, that nihilism will chip away your materialism until it just sort of fizzles out in you. That contradiction of the virgin and of your wife, a fountain, a vine, whatever you want to find in the Song of Songs, that will remain a contradiction until you personally, experientially see it through to the paradox. But you have to be a Christian. You have to, you have to, you have to uh, enter the arena. And again, that's, that's very, you know, the low resolution language, but each person will, you know, they'll, they'll open their Bible, they'll go to the church, they'll, they'll seek out God and they'll, and God, God's real. God will find 
those who knock the door. And then, it, then those words, I think, will they'll, they'll find their granularity, which they must. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a great verse. Um, he who has called you is faithful and he will accomplish it, right? Indeed. Indeed. This has been great, Matthew. I always enjoy so much talking to you. You really um, have a beautiful mind. Thank not not of the sort from the movie, but an actual <laughs> beautiful mind. <laughs> oh, thank you. Good seeing you, Karen. Yeah, have a blessed Pasco week and and uh, you too. Yeah, and we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. -bye.